We are back to our series entitled Near to the Heart of God, which has to do with our study of uh, the various prayers of the New Testament. And as you'll recall, there are a number of prayers that have always challenged me because as I have examined my own prayer life, I've discovered that I come up very short of those who have recorded prayers in the, uh, in the New Testament. And so my study of those things has been very enriching and I try to hope that that's uh, shared with you in a similar vein. Uh, as you recognize, the prayers of the New Testament come primarily from two sources, one from Jesus and the other from Paul. Uh, we are still talking about the prayers of Jesus to begin with, and we began our series uh, looking at the Lord's Prayer. I will mention as well that as you recall, Jesus prayed a lot, but we don't have very many examples written down of the prayers that he prayed. Uh, he was often off by himself, spending hours, in fact, even sometimes all night with the Father. The disciples recognized that and recognized the power and significance uh, that came with his time with his heavenly Father. Uh, but there are only a couple of occasions in which uh, we actually get the words of the prayers of Jesus. And one of them uh, we've just finished studying, that was John chapter 17. Uh, Jesus prayed that prayer in the presence of the disciples in the upper room, at the end of the upper room discourse, and so they were able to uh, remember it and record it, and that's been a blessing to us in uh, immense ways, and we spent three weeks studying it. Uh, I called that the real Lord's Prayer uh, because what we typically call the Lord's Prayer wasn't really the Lord's Prayer, it was his instruction on praying. As you recall, when the disciples saw that Jesus uh, was spending so much time in prayer and what a significant difference it made uh, in the nature of his ministry compared to everybody else's, they said, teach us to pray. And when he taught them to pray, he gave them the Lord's Prayer as a pattern for praying. And I want to begin back there this evening because I think it's important as we look at another one of Jesus' prayers that we do have a record of in the New Testament, that is his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, it would be important for us, I think, to have the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, in mind. And I think you'll be surprised at how Jesus uh, really did uh, engage with the pattern that he gave his disciples in his own praying in the process. So if you'll recall what we call the Lord's Prayer, the addresses to our Father. Uh, that's an intimate term uh, that really does represent the kind of relationship and closeness that Jesus had with his Father. Uh, I mentioned when we went through that prayer, that does not mean that we're prohibited in praying to any and all members of the Trinity. We can pray to Jesus and we can pray to the Holy Spirit. That's appropriate, but at the same time, we're reminded when we recognize that Jesus taught us to pray our Father, that that was a term of great intimacy. And we are encouraged by virtue of the relationship we have through Jesus Christ that we have access to this heavenly Father. That's a remarkable thing uh, to, to be remembering, remembering, that the creator of the universe is also our savior. Uh, it reminds us of the care of our God, the love and protection and provision that he has. Uh, we, we're reminded of not only is this God transcendental, are transcendent, but he's also imminent. He's not only far away, but he's very, very near. He's not only gloriously other, but he's also wonderfully intimate with us. And so that's where Jesus begins 
uh, to teach us how to pray, he in fact prays in a similar way as we'll see. Uh, there are six petitions, as you'll recall, in the so-called Lord's Prayer. The first one is, hallowed be your name. That is the first petition is really desiring the honor of God. That our primary concern in our praying is to be for, the, for God and his glory. And then he tells us to pray, your kingdom come. Uh, that is, we're to ask and desire God's reign and rule to prevail, not only to prevail uh, in our hearts, but also to prevail in the church and, and even in the earth, as we certainly remember the Lord's prayer unfolding in that way. Uh, your will be done. We, our desire is that as we pray, that God's ways and desires would, would have their way in us. It implies a, a personal submission even as we pray. And we're reminded then that prayer changes us. We put ourselves in a posture of submission before the God who is our creator. Uh, that we recognize that his will ought to be done not only in our hearts, but also in the church and also in the earth as the prayer indicates. That really is the first portion of what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's God-centered. It's the God-centered portion, and it aligns quite well with the first table of the law, the law of Moses. As you'll recall, uh, the first uh, four commandments really have to do with the relationship of the people of God with God. It's a vertical kind of uh, law. And then we change gears, and we start to pray for ourselves and one another. Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, the second table of the law begins to be represented here. It's a prayer for the provision of our basic needs, a prayer for food, for shelter, for, for clothing. It reminds us that we are dependent on God for all of these kinds of things, and we should ask God to provide for them. Forgive us our debts is the next one, as we forgive those who are our debtors. There is a sense in which we ought to come before God with the confession of our sins, that we need the forgiveness of God. We are, in fact, a community of constantly repenting sinners. Uh, the forgiveness of others is also not only implied, but also required, because at the conclusion of this prayer, you'll recall that Jesus says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So there is a bit of a challenge there with respect to that prayer, forgive us our debts. And then lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, this is a recognition of our weakness before uh, our world, before the temptations that surround us. Deliver us from evil. We're asking God to remove the evil influences from our thinking and from, from anyone and anything that might draw us into sin. And I think we need to have uh, these kinds of things, uh, these kinds of elements in mind as we examine the prayers of the New Testament, whether they be the prayers of Paul or, or the prayers of Jesus, and you'll see the parallels unfolding as we look at the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, we're going to take a look at that. The Garden of Gethsemane prayer is located three times in three different Gospels in the, what we call the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And each of them has a little different nuance, a little different take on this particular prayer. And I think because that's the case, I'm going to read all three passages, uh, both the Matthew and the Mark and the Luke passages, to sort of get, us, uh, get the text before us, and then we'll begin to put the pieces together and understand what actually took place and unfolded during those moments in the garden. So first of all, we take a look at Matthew. 
chapter 26, beginning in verse 36. If you have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to follow along. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. That's the Matthew passage. Uh, the Mark, uh, Mark passage is similar, but it also has some, some differences, and let's pick that up in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. That's the Mark passage. And then Luke, again, has its own set of nuances. Uh, chapter 22 of Luke, verse 39 and following. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. 
And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, hopefully, you picked up a few of the elements of the Lord's Prayer, the so-called Lord's Prayer, even as we prayed through three times uh, those passages dealing with Jesus' uh, prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. So let's put them all together and uh, look at the chronology of what exactly took place on that evening. First of all, they go to Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives. He tells his disciples uh, to sit until Jesus prays, And then he also tells the disciples to pray that they would not enter into temptation. There it is to begin with. We have that element coming into the Lord's Prayer as well. Then he takes Peter, James, and John from the others, and Jesus becomes grieved to the point of death. And he tells Peter, James, and John to keep watch with him. And then Jesus goes beyond them and prays, and he falls on his face, and he calls God Abba, Father. And then he asks to avoid the cup, but he expresses a willingness to accept the Father's will. And so an angel appears at that time, strengthening him, according to the Luke passage. But the Luke passage indicates that he's in agony. He engages in fervent praying, and that his sweat became like drops of blood. Then he goes back to the three disciples. He finds them sleeping. They couldn't watch even one hour while Jesus prayed. And so he exhorts them again to watch and pray that they not enter into temptation. He indicates to them that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Then he goes back and prays a second time. And on that occasion, he submits himself to the will of God. And then he comes back to the disciples and he finds them sleeping, their eyes again heavy, They had no answer. They were embarrassed at that. Then he goes back and he prays the third time, same prayer essentially as the second time. And then he comes back to the disciples who are still sleeping, and he indicates the hour of betrayal has come, and so he exhorts them again for the third time to rise and pray so as not to enter into temptation. Now, let's talk a little bit before we look at the connection with the Lord's prayer and recognize sort of the physical and emotional elements that we find in this prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, quite an intense period in the life and ministry of our Lord. Uh, First of all, the place that they went to Gethsemane was a customary place of prayer. Uh, Luke says they went as was his custom. And so they had a place that they would go with some frequency, and this was where they went on this particular occasion. We all ought to have a customary place. Do you have a customary place where you meet with God on a regular basis? Uh, Most of these times, most of the time, these customary times and places will be kind of ordinary times of prayer. But occasionally, in those customary places, we may find ourselves meeting with God in the context of great distress, moments of great transition, and extraordinary decisions, but we have put ourselves in that position because we have a customary place, a place that we always go. If we don't have such a customary place, we may shortchange our opportunity to meet with God, particularly on those extraordinary occasions. We also recognize that there was great grief and distress 
in the mind and heart of Jesus at this particular point in time. He indicates that he was so distressed it was even to the point of death. He's almost going to die even before he gets to the crucifixion because of his angst at what he's about to face. Uh, This certainly does indicate the humanity of our Lord Jesus, does it not? That he feels the same kinds of things that we would feel in the midst of an impending uh, disaster, if you will, looking at us like that. The God-man that we know is in fact fully man. He experienced the highs and lows of the human condition. He experiences the joys and the sadness. He experiences the losses uh, that he felt just like we experienced the losses. Even Jesus, by the way, then is not afraid to pour out his distresses in his humanity to his heavenly Father. We then also learned that he falls down and kneels. The posture of prayer, I think, is significant on this occasion because, you see, the normal posture of prayer in worship in those days was to stand. That's the way people prayed. They would stand in prayer. Aren't you glad that you don't stand when we pray? (laughs) It might be a little challenging, but that's what they normally did. But that's not what Jesus did on this occasion. In the midst of this great distress, the physical stress that Jesus dealt with was overwhelming to him. And so he falls on the ground. He falls on his face. He kneels. And his posture then reflects his activity of submission to the will of the Father. And so that position reflects his disposition. I don't know what position you use when you pray. Maybe you uh, sit in a chair or maybe you lie down. Uh, But sometimes we're led perhaps even to get on our knees under certain circumstances, but it reflects in this case Jesus' submission to the Father. And then it indicates in the Luke passage that Jesus was in agony. Now the word agony has an interesting uh, sort of history that relates to athletic contests. Uh, This is the most athletic thing Jesus ever does, was to pray this way in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because the word for agony brings to mind the legend of Pheidippides. Do you know the legend of Pheidippides? You're about to find out. Pheidippides was a Greek messenger who was involved in the Battle of Marathon between the Greeks and the Persians in 490 B.C., Uh, a battle which turned out to have victory for the Greek army. But uh, the powers that be noted that a Persian vessel uh, changed its course at the conclusion of uh, that battle and turned toward Athens. And uh, it was interpreted essentially as an attempt of the defeated Persians to rush back to the capital of Greece, to Athens, and either claim victory or conduct an additional raid on the city. And as a result, they recruited Pheidippides to be the messenger. And Pheidippides thus ran all the way from Marathon to Athens without stopping. He even took off his... Uh, armor. He took off whatever was holding him back, and legend has it that he even stripped naked so that he would have nothing to hold him back, and they ran as fast as he could for the time, for the period all the way from Marathon to Athens. One possible route of Marathon to Athens puts that distance at about 26 miles, and that's where you come up with the length of the race that we know of as the marathon. 
there are debates about that, but essentially that's where that comes from. Well, Pheidippides ran all the way to Athens from Marathon, discarding his weapons and his clothes, dispensing with whatever weight. He burst into the Greek assembly and and he cried out, we have won, and then he died right there in front of all the Greeks in the assembly. Now, the place of assembly was known in Greek as Agon. And so Agon, or its, uh, its related word, Agonia, uh, became known as a place of assembly, especially for the place in which the athletic games would be conducted because of the excruciating mental and emotional distress associated with that particular occasion. And so when that word is used in the Gospel of Luke, uh, those at least of Greek-speaking background would have understood the nature of what Jesus was going through, the excruciating physical, mental, and emotional stress that he experienced. Have you experienced prayer times like that? If you have, perhaps you find yourselves completely exhausted by the experience. I'm sure Jesus was under those circumstances. But when Luke says that he was in agony, that's where that word came from, and that's what uh, he seemed to represent under those occasions. Luke also indicated that he sweat like great drops of blood. Now, some people mistake this for saying that Jesus sweat blood. That's not what the text says. It's just that his sweat was like drops of blood. It sort of speaks of of the magnitude of his sweat, the the consistency and and thickness of his sweat. Uh, Maybe it's the kind of sweat that we might have today if we had to go out and work outside on these days that have been so excruciatingly hot and humid. If I did that even for an hour, I would have my shirt drenched with sweat. In fact, I remember that when I had my heart attack, the one consistent uh, symptom was that I was sweating profusely, even though the temperature was perfectly normal in my house. But I had uh, basically had a shirt that was dripping wet, just like I had been working outside. So Jesus was in that kind of frame of physical condition when he was praying. He was, in fact, uh, undergoing that kind of excruciating uh, athletic experience, so to speak. And then we learn that, as well, Jesus repeated his prayers. It indicates that he prayed essentially the same prayer three times. It reminds us of a parable that Jesus taught, Luke chapter 18. Uh, You might remember that. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this woman, a widow, keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not uh, beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And then he puts it this way, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The message there is to don't give up in your praying. Jesus didn't give up. He went back three times to ask the Father 
uh, for his uh, work in this matter. And then we find the disciples sleeping due to exhaustion. Do you have trouble with that? <laughs> Does anybody not have trouble with that? Well, we find ourselves that uh, very often it's difficult to continue to maintain our praying sometimes without uh, falling asleep. Uh, I've learned that that's okay. I will sleep a little, pray a little, sleep a little, pray a little. Maybe you've worked into that kind of framework, um, and maybe that, that works for you. But I think it's important that we work to find ways to continue to concentrate. Obviously, the disciples didn't have that. I find that it's useful uh, to, to pray through the Psalms, which is the prayer book of the, of the Old Testament of the Hebrew people, and, and that keeps me on track. It's, very, it's much more difficult to simply make up prayers all the time myself, and so praying through and personalizing the Psalms is a very valuable way of doing it. I also use uh, the Valley of Vision, which is a, a book of, uh, of Puritan prayers that I pray with great frequency that helps me uh, maintain uh, that kind of prayer life but it's difficult to maintain a prayer life without those kinds of helps, and the disciples discovered that. We also recognize, as Jesus did with the disciples, that their flesh was weak. There's a recognition that we need the sustaining work of the Spirit of God in our praying, but we're encouraged by that. Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is, in the, what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It's a good thing we have the Spirit of God, isn't it? Because if we had to rely on our flesh to maintain a prayer life, we would never, never make it. We also see in this uh, passage that has unfolded before us uh, the relationship of exhaustion to temptation. The more exhausted we are, the easier it is to fall into temptation. The, the disciples were tired. They were tired from the beginning. And so uh, when they fall uh, into that kind of level of exhaustion, they also fall into the position of being easily tempted. That teaches us something, by the way, about the value of Sabbath-keeping. Now, now, we Christians tend not to be particularly, particularly legalistic about Sabbath-keeping. We do things uh, on, on Sunday, which has often been recognized by most Christians as the uh, Christian Sabbath. But at the same time, this pattern of, of work and rest established long ago among the people of Israel, but also practiced by Christians throughout the centuries called Sabbath-keeping, is awfully important because it gives us a chance to be rejuvenated in the Lord, to be renewed in our spirits, so that we might find ourselves in the midst of temptation when the stresses come in our lives, much more able to respond in faith and obedience to the things of God and hear the word of God communicated to us. And so it's important to recognize that we do whatever we can to prevent that kind of exhaustion, uh, whatever pattern it might be, uh, to find ourselves in the position of, of taking some kind of Sabbath for ourselves. And maybe it's a little odd, a little different, when you're retired uh, because you don't have quite the same schedules that you used to have, but at the same time, we need to find ways in which we can uh, do genuine Sabbath keeping. Um, obviously, I have a hard time doing that on Sundays. Okay, Sundays is a work day for me. 
and Saturday afternoon and evening is a work day for me. Uh, so it's a little more difficult. But I did have a nap this afternoon. That was a, is an important part of my Lord's Day. It typically tends to be. But I usually have to find other ways to find that Sabbath rest that God wants us to have. And there's also the relation of, of sorrow to exhaustion. Uh, not only was Jesus sorrowful to the point of exhaustion, so were the disciples. Emotional distress can lead to exhaustion. We see it in all of the people involved in, in this particular situation. So all of these things have a relationship to our own prayer lives, do they not? We can identify with many of them. But then let's finally return to what Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, the so-called Lord's Prayer, uh, you'll recall that Jesus taught us to pray our Father. It's exactly where Jesus begins, isn't it? Uh, the text indicates that Jesus prayed, Abba, Father. He went to the most intimate of his triune members, and uh, that's what he does. And it's appropriate that he prays that way. He taught us to pray that way. And then the petitions start out by, hallowed be your name. And so he recognizes who God is as he prays uh, his Father. He says, all things are possible for you. He, he recognizes the omnipotence of God and the omniscience of God, even in that one statement. Uh, we are to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. And Jesus himself says on uh, several occasions, not my will, but yours be done. This is the Son of God praying to the Father, even that the cup would pass him by, but he also recognizes that he's submitting himself to the will of God. Uh, give us this day our, our daily bread. And he, so he comes to the Lord. If it be possible, may this cup pass me by. And then, of course, uh, we're taught to pray to forgive us our debts as we forgive our, our debtors. Now, of course, Jesus had no debts. He didn't have to ask forgiveness for anything, but everything that was Jesus was about to go through provided the basis for our praying that prayer. So we can pray that prayer because Jesus went to the cross, can't we? And so even that part of the Lord's Prayer, the so-called Lord's Prayer, uh, is something that flows out of the prayer in Gethsemane. And then there is the statement in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. Uh, Jesus recognizes that, that shows up over and over again in his prayer in Gethsemane. He says, pray that you will not enter into temptation. He says that three times to his disciples. He tells them the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so he recognizes the general weakness of, of the people of God and how we need to ask God to not lead us into temptation. And then Jesus had his own periods of temptation, as you'll recall. Remember, in the beginning of his earthly ministry, he was led by the Spirit into the, into the wilderness. And you might recall, as Luke records, that uh, the devil had tempted him on three different ways. The devil tempted him, as recorded in, in uh, Matthew and also in Luke. Uh, but Luke records that in that temptation experience, eventually after those uh, temptations that that Satan had left him, that the devil left him until an opportune time. That's the way Luke puts it. The devil left him until an opportune time. Well, guess when the devil showed up again? The devil showed up in Gethsemane. But here was the additional opportunity for Jesus to be tempted again. And so the last temptation that 
he was to to go through was to avoid the cross once again and gain the kingdom by another means. And so Jesus finds himself in agony over this decision, great distress, sweating drops of blood, overwhelmed with emotional distress, but yet submitting himself to the will of God in this prayer. And that's why we recognize how valuable Jesus' instruction on prayer happens to be. He essentially follows his own instruction in praying even in the midst of his time of greatest distress in the Garden of Gethsemane. Even in his most exhausting, excruciating, agonizing times, he follows his own pattern, the pattern that he prescribed for us on what we call the Lord's Prayer. That's why we started with the Lord's Prayer, but that's why we see it illustrated even in this prayer of Jesus. I trust that you'll be encouraged then uh, to recount those things that would help us in our walk with the Lord and our praying together as well. Our Heavenly Father, we call you Father because that's who you are to us, because we cast ourselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that you would lead us through those times of temptation and that you would give us the capacity by the Spirit of the living God to walk through those times of temptations with victory, that we would be strengthened in the midst of our predicaments, that we would be encouraged in our distress, and that you would help us walk through those times submitting ourselves to the will of God so that in the end we would find ourselves glorifying the God of all creation, the God of our redemption, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, whom we exalt this evening. We ask that he would be exalted in our praying in Jesus' name. Amen.